May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. This morning I want to talk with you about assurance. My text is John 14, 1 through 14, the gospel reading that you've just heard. You'll find it in your service booklet and you'll find it in a Bible in front of you. But first, I want to tell you a story. About five or six years ago, I was weed eating, or maybe you should say I was eating weeds. I went in the backyard with a weed eater, and there's this great cloud of dust and grass and mold and pollens, and I had a histamine release that was spectacular. I went into the house to cool off. I washed my face, dried myself off, I cleaned myself off the best I could. I got a big glass of water. I sat down to drink the water and cool off. And after a while, I thought, you know, some of those seedless cold grapes would be good to eat. And I put one in my mouth. And when I did, I managed to cough, sneeze, and swallow simultaneously. I inhaled a grape. I don't mean I swallowed it. I inhaled it. I did the Heimlich maneuver on me at least five times. I stood on my head in the great room. I used the couch. I used the sofa. I used the easy chair. I did everything I could. I'm not really good about standing on my head, but I did everything I could, and that piece of grape was gone. Now, the next day, I didn't feel good. And two days later, I was sick. And I went to see my doctor with an emergency visit. And when he came in the room, I truly wish I had a video of his face. He said, Jim, what are you doing here? What's the problem? I inhaled a grape. He tried not to laugh. And so he got an x-ray, and yes, I had pneumonia, and he sent me to bronchoscopy. If you know anything about bronchoscopy, it's when they take a water hose and shove it down your throat and look around. Well, there were some friends of mine who ended up going to that area of the hospital and were praying for me that morning. I didn't know they were there. And as I was rolling down the hall thinking about this water hose... I wasn't so worried about my lungs, I was worried about the water hose, you know. This nurse who worked in that area came out, grabbed the roller, stopped it, and looked me right in the face and she said, It's going to be all right. And I said, It is? She said, It's going to be all right. If anyone else had said that, I'm not sure it would have had much of an effect on me. But, you know, I believed her. And I relaxed. And the procedure went fine. And, yes, I had pneumonia. And, yes, they changed the antibiotic. And I didn't have cancer. And I got well, and I'm fine. Well, this morning I want to talk with you about the disciples. They weren't fine. They were bewildered and discouraged. 
Jesus said he was going away and that he would die. One would betray him. One would deny him three times. The devil would be after them. Oh, it was going to be bad. They were troubled in heart and spirit. Yet on his night of nights, the time when he could have used support from them, when they could have provided him spiritual and emotional support, instead he ended up giving, comforting, instructing. Later they could not watch with him for even one hour. From time to time, we are all troubled. No one is exempt. We suffer because of what we love and what we fear. From our bodies and from our minds, from inward and from outward. We suffer for our failures and we suffer from our successes. We suffer from what we don't have and from what we do have. We suffer from the past, the present, the future. This happens to individuals, it happens to couples, it happens to families, it happens to churches, it happens to denominations. Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. As we all know, reassurance is not often reassuring. They're there now. It's going to be fine. Don't worry. You'll be all right. But when Jesus says something, it is assurance. It's a promise. Because you see, Jesus makes it happen. He can make it happen. He assures. Now, I think we should pray rather than to try to reassure people. We should ask Jesus to comfort people, to heal people, to relieve their troubled hearts. We'll see this morning that faith in Jesus is in the end the remedy for our troubled hearts. Peter walked on the water as long as he kept his eyes on Jesus. Believe in God, believe also in me. The disciples are faithful Jews. They believe in God already, but they're young Christians and they don't know what to do with Jesus yet. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Jesus gives us a heaven where believers will be someday. It's the home of God and the home of Jesus. Home is where we're loved. It's where we're loved to the end, never forgotten, and we're always welcome. Heaven is a place of many rooms, a lasting, permanent, and eternal dwelling. There will be room for all believers and a place for each believer. Only sinners who are not penitent and unbelievers will be shut out. We should recognize that it was by his very going, by his betrayal, crucifixion, and exaltation that he makes this possible for us to dwell in the presence of God. The imminent departure of Jesus, which so troubled the hearts of his disciples, was in fact for their benefit, for their good, and for ours. It is the going itself, via the cross and resurrection, that prepares the place for Jesus' disciples. Jesus has not been doing carpentry for 2,000 years, making little mansions. He's prepared a place for us. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself. 
Jesus will return to his sheep. Now some would look at this passage and think it's about what happens to a Christian when they die. But the context of that sentence is simply about Jesus dying. It's not the death of a Christian. But at the end of the day, at the end of the age, Jesus will return. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of a trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. And he goes on to say that where I am, you may be also. We need not think that we shall be alone and neglected. It is not clear what we will see in heaven, but it is clear we will see Jesus. To those who love the Lord, these words bring great comfort. And for those who don't yet know the Lord, they fall flat. We have here a strong reason for expecting good things in the future. But our unbelief may rob us of our comfort about heaven. We say, you know, I wish I could really think this is all true. I mean, I've heard it. It sounds good. I like it, but I'm really sick. I may die now. I wish I could really believe this. Or people say, I'm not sure I'm going to get into heaven. I've been bad. Let us hear what Jesus has to say. And you know the way to where I am going. Jesus had been showing them the way, but they didn't get it. He told them many times. And Thomas says to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Thomas is described by John as a loyal and courageous disciple, but one who is filled with apprehension and doubt. His question sounds as if he interpreted Jesus' words in the most concrete way possible. He wants an unambiguous destination. He wants a map. And they remain puzzled. Jesus said to him, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Jesus is the way. He's the way to the Father primarily because his death made access to the Father's presence possible for sinful human beings like us. He brought the truth of God into the world. And you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. When people come to Jesus, they come to the one in whom the truth about the Father is found. As the Father has life in himself, so Jesus has life in himself. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. Thomas Akempis wrote, Follow thou me, I am the way, and the truth, and the life. Without the way there is no going, without the truth there is no knowing. Without the life there is no living. I am the way which thou must follow, the truth which thou must believe, the life for which thou must hope. 
I am the inviolable way, the infallible truth, the never-ending life. I am the straightest way, the sovereign truth, life true, life blessed, life uncreated. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one else can bring people to God, for no one else has seen God or made Him known. No one else speaks and embodies the truth about God as He does. No one else shares the very life of God, and no one else has dealt with the problem of human sin so as to bring people back to a holy God. This means that no one can claim to know God while rejecting Jesus, His Son. Jesus makes a remarkable statement to the the disciples, claiming that he is the only way to God. In this, he sets aside the temple and its rituals, as well as all other religions. The way to the Father is exclusive. It isn't through the Ten Commandments. The golden rule being good or a church membership, it can only be accessed through Jesus. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. If you had rightly known me as the divine Messiah and all the fullness of my nature, you would then have known more of that Father to whom I am inseparably united. No one can rightly know me without knowing the Father, because I and the Father are one. From now on, you do not know him. I'm sorry. From now on, you know him and have seen him. This can be taken to mean, understand that from now on, in knowing me, you know the Father, and in seeing me, you see the Father, to the extent that the Father can be, can be seen by a human being. Although the Son and the Father are two distinct persons in the Trinity, yet there is a close and mysterious union between them. In a sense, if we see the Son, we see the Father. It is written of the Son that He is the express image of the Father. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Perhaps like Moses He and the other disciples had a desire to actually see with their own eyes God's glory right in front of them. Then they would have enough proof. Philip asks for direct access, an immediate display of God himself. Philip joins a long line of human beings through the ages who've rightly understood that there can be no higher experience than seeing God as He is, in His unimaginable splendor and His transcendent glory. We know we've been made in His image, however much we've tarnished it and defaced it. We still, we still desire to be, to behold the vision of God. Moses begged, please show me your glory. But he had only a glimpse of God's glory. So Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? 
Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. In other words, he says, I don't know if Jesus can be exasperated. I certainly know I can be. But I think Jesus said, well, listen, if you won't believe what I'm saying, just look at the works. Look at the miracles. Maybe you'll believe them, Philip. So Jesus did perform miracles. And they were full of power and grace. He turned the water into wine. He multiplied the loaves. He raised Lazarus from the dead. Only a God working within Jesus would be able to do this. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. In short, the works that the disciples perform after the resurrection are greater than those done by Jesus before his death, insofar as the former belong to an age of clarity and power that's introduced by Jesus' sacrifice and exaltation. Jesus is about to return to his Father. He's about to be glorified. And in the wake of his glorification, his followers will know and make known all that Jesus is and does. And their every deed and word will belong to a new age that will then have dawned. The signs and works Jesus performed during his earthly ministry could not fully accomplish their true end until after Jesus had risen from the dead and had been exalted. Let me put it simply. Jesus and his disciples had ministered for three years. Many people came to believe in Jesus, but he had not yet been crucified, had not yet been resurrected, had not yet ascended in glory, and had not yet sent the Spirit. A new age of the kingdom had not yet been born. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I'll do it. We should notice that in this verse he says, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. He doesn't say that God will do it. He says, I will do it. John wrote in his first epistle, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And I would simply say that when we end our prayers in Jesus' name, it's not magic. It's not an incantation. It refers to the fact that Jesus has made access to the Father possible. So let's take an account of the assurance Jesus gives his disciples and us. If we believe in God, we believe in Jesus. There's room in heaven for all who believe. Jesus will come again for believers. We know the way to heaven. It's through Jesus. Truth is the life in Jesus. No one can bring people to God except Jesus. Jesus and the Father are one. Jesus is the life here and in heaven. The only way to heaven is through Jesus. If you know Jesus, you know the Father. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. If you believe in Jesus, you will do more works than He. If you ask 
anything according to his purpose. He'll do it. And he says, let not your hearts be troubled. I believe it is enough. I am assured. Amen. Amen.